The overall theme of our podcast is that things that happen in the past reoccur, but Trump's line of thinking doesn't really feel like something that's ever been in the past for me. Throughout my life, I've, I've always heard politicians justify their xenophobia by saying that it's actually about terrorism or gang membership. Paul, I'm just wondering about how you've heard this justification. Is it something new for you? Well, I think that we've always heard about the problem that uncontrolled immigration could lead to criminals, terrorists, other undesirables entering the country. I think that what's unusual probably in my memory is a president indicating that whole groups of individuals, migrants, people of certain religions, people from certain countries are essentially no good and harmful to the United States. So I, I don't know that it's ever been done on such a, an overt uh, racial and religious basis. I think there's always been an undercurrent of racial and religious bias in the immigration laws. I mean, you only have to go back and see that we once had a Chinese Exclusion Act. One thing that you said right there is that the antagonism towards migrants has become more intense. So can you just say for me the changes in the amount or the frequency in how uh, antagonism towards immigrants has become? Another change I've seen, Marika, is sort of the concept of a refugee. I think at one time, particularly I think after World War One and during the rise of communism. It said something good about the United States that people were fleeing from Iron Curtain countries and communist countries and choosing to come here. And many of them were talented people who made a big difference for our country. So there was this sort of positive picture of being a haven for refugees said something good about your country, its institutions, its attitudes. Uh, now, that seems to have changed. The refugee is, is being portrayed more as a, a freeloader, and when refugees come, instead of looking at it as gee, it's sort of a vote of confidence in our country and our structure and our economic prosperity, folks look at it as, oh, we're, we're being taken advantage of, or you know, we're getting the riffraff uh, of the world coming to the United States because they can't go anywhere else. So I, I think that as as during my lifetime, I've seen refugees go from sort of an honored group that showed the strength of the country to a government that promotes an attitude of making America great means keeping refugees out and keeping everything for ourselves. So I think the loss of, of pride and recognition that uh, being a refugee receiving country as opposed to a refugee generating country generally says something good about your country uh, and, its, and its political system and its people as opposed to a country that everybody's trying to get out of. Yeah, right. Seeing people as dangerous threats, seeing people as invaders of a country, all this pushes policy to value enforcement over humanitarian relief. But as we talked about in past episodes, enforcement actually serves the best interest of those in Congress who might want benefits like creation of jobs in their districts. Enforcement in action, like we talked about before, actually creates unreasonable pressures on underfunded courts. And overall, it makes the system liable to uniform acquiescence and it perpetuates stagnation. 
Enforcement doesn't work because asylum seekers aren't dangerous threats or criminals or murderers. They're for the most part regular people fleeing violence. So I want to go back in time to the 80s. But in order to do that, first I want to set up a bit of what the U.S. had done in the later half of the 20th century. So in 1967, countries around the world signed the protocols relating to the status of refugees, a treaty that asked members to provide asylum to qualifying refugees, and the United States uh, signed the protocols at that time, although we maintained that only Congress could define a qualifying refugee. Still, going into the late 1970s, we didn't have a comprehensive refugee legislation and Cold War tensions, the war in Vietnam, which was displaced hundreds and thousands of people. And using the system of presidential parole on a case-by-case basis for all of these different refugees that were cropping up all over the world left Congress a little worried about its power to define refugee. They thought their power might be being diluted by this system of presidential parole. So the solution was to create a piece of legislation that defined agencies and procedures for processing and accepting refugees abroad. So, Paul, what do you remember about the initial need to set up this encompassing legislation? Why it happened and what were some of the tensions and the events happening in government leading up to the creation of this legislation? Okay, well, I think you've got the impetus right. It it came out of the migrations following the refugee, uh, following the fall of Indochina, and the fact that uh, the administration had to keep coming back to Congress for these sort of ad hoc uh, admissions of refugees using the president, the executive's parole authority, and then of course they needed funding for them and relocation expenses. So, and it seemed to be happening on a fairly regular basis. And I think there was some feeling in Congress that they that there was too much initiative, too much of this was being shaped by the executive, and that Congress was abandoning its role in controlling refugee and immigration policy. I think one of the leaders was Ted Kennedy, who felt that uh, since we'd signed the 1967 uh, protocol, that we ought to be adopting some of the international provisions and definitions into our domestic law, and that we really needed a, a system based on the protocol that we had already signed uh, to be enacted into law and to become part of the immigration law. And I think Ted Kennedy was the, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee at that time. And his, his main person, at least on these issues, was a staff member who's now sadly uh, passed away uh, named Jerry Tinker. Uh, there also, I think, was a receptiveness in the uh, administration uh, because this came up uh, during the late 70s. It was a Carter administration. And the Carter administration had put quite a bit of emphasis on uh, human rights as being very important uh, to our foreign policy they and to America. Yeah, well, they created, I think, the, there was an assistant secretary of state for humanitarian affairs, which I'm not sure had existed before. And actually, uh, that was Pat Darien. And her uh, assistant, special assistant, was a guy named... Uh, uh, a brilliant, brilliant uh, lawyer named 
David Martin, who, who had graduated from Yale Law School. He'd been a Supreme Court clerk for uh, Justice Powell, and he later went on not only to become a, uh, an important official in uh, several uh, Democratic administrations, but also a, a renowned uh, uh, tenured now emeritus professor of law at uh, the University of Virginia, wrote treatises, was uh, internet, uh, very active with uh, uh, international groups, uh, highly respected by everyone as one of the leading authorities on uh, immigration, American immigration and refugee law. So uh, I, I think David was also very instrumental in that uh, he brought a lot of intellectual firepower to the table. And enthusiasm, we were all young men, <laughs> so uh, we all had a lot of energy and enthusiasm, and, you know, we, we thought... Thought it was for the future? Well, yeah, I think we thought we were really, if not saving the world, at least making the, setting up a structure that would make the world a better place, would make it uh, easier uh, to bring refugees to the United States, would lead to greater acceptance by having everything... Uh, laid out. So I, I think it was with a sense of uh, quite a bit of optimism uh, for the future that we initially <laughs> approached the project. So other than a desire to create a better future for refugees, why was the <laughs> Refugee Act necessary at that time? Well, and clearly uh, David Martin and I weren't driving the train here. Uh, uh, it was being pushed by you know, important people up in the administration, I think probably, you know, probably going all the way up to President Carter uh, and certainly the leadership of Congress. So I think from Congress's standpoint, it was a desire to sort of take back control over refugee admissions from just being totally reactive to administration requests and, and controlling things through whether they, uh, through budget requests, to becoming part of the planning process. So they were consulted in advance about the administration's uh, proposals for admitting refugees in advance. And so uh, their views could be considered before the administration made a decision. I think from the administration standpoint, uh, it was to regularize the process. So instead of going up there hat in hand saying, oh, by the way, uh, we know we were here uh, last year, but now we have this other situation, and here's why uh, we have to take care of this. And uh, you know, they kept on sort of saying, "Well, this is this. We think this is the last major uh, influx we're going to have," and that, that never turned out to be true. So the administration, I think, was losing some credibility. So having a regular way of sort of uh, bringing Congress in, so you knew by the time you had. Uh, you actually went up there, what the answer was going to be, uh, and the hearings weren't uh, as acrimonious, and that there was a sort of a permanent system for funding and reset, you know, funding refugee resettlement, uh, providing money. Uh, instead of doing it on an ad hoc base, from an executive standpoint, it, it made it easier to plan. You planned on a certain number of refugee admissions. If Congress approved it, you knew the money was going to be there. So you, it made it easier to allocate personnel and to actually have a refugee program rather than an ad hoc program. Uh, of course, from the Department and of Justice. And by a reactive system, you mean one where refugees or asylum seekers would appear yeah, and I mean, be a scramble? Yeah, I mean, what happened, I think, is after the original boat lift, the refugees continued to come out and they 
they sought refuge in other Thailand and uh, there were maybe Burma. So as they escaped from Indochina and started to build up in third countries, the pressure on the United States increased to help the third countries out. In particular, I think there were a lot of uh, Indochinese refugees in Thailand and you know, the UNHCR and the, and the Thai government wanted the U.S. as one of the major participants in the Vietnamese situation to take a larger share of the refugees out of the camps because the, it was hard it was hard for the countries of first asylum. So it was to basically take pressure off countries of first asylum in Southeast Asia. And I think it was hard to predict what the flow of Vietnamese or Indochinese boat people was going to be. I mean, they kind of came out on an ad hoc basis, so uh, it, it was hard to project when there'd be a critical mass in the camp and when there'd be pressure on the United States. And there was a small provision put into the new legislation for asylum seekers already in the U.S., right? Yeah, I think it almost was an afterthought because the asylum system in the United States really wasn't the main driving force. The main driving force were the over, was the overseas refugee program, which is what was a, at that time a much bigger pro, you know, there were many there were many more people seeking refugee status from overseas than asylum in the United States. But we really didn't have a statutory way of, of adjudicating asylum claims in the United States. We had a provision of the law known as withholding of removal, and the Board of Immigration Appeals had construed that as being the equivalent of Article 33 of the UN Convention and the 67 Protocol. But uh, it was just a board decision, and the thought was it would be better. The refugee definition wasn't contained in the US law, and there was no established system for asylum. And people who got withholding of removal under, under the Immigration Act at that time, there was no provision that allowed them to bring their families. If their families weren't here and didn't qualify, uh, the only way their families could be brought was through exercise of parole, sort of ad hoc parole authority. And there was no provision for their fund, for them to get funding for any kind of uh, integration, English language, uh, job training, things they needed. Uh, plus, there was no real provision for them to get green cards. So they just stayed here in withholding status. They couldn't be removed. Most of them had orders of removal that were being withheld. They couldn't be removed, but they couldn't really travel. They couldn't get green cards. They couldn't bring in relatives. And they could, unless they happened to marry a U.S. citizen or something, they could never become uh, get on the road to becoming U.S. citizens. So the people who got relief were sort of here in limbo. And I think some people thought that that conflicted with the provisions of the convention and protocol that said you should do the best to give uh, refugees lawfully in your country rights comparable to those uh, as nationals of your country. So there really wasn't a good way of doing that. So the desire to have a formal application system, which would also have a way of fund, getting funding 
helping the people adjust and uh, bringing in their relatives and also getting them green cards and citizenship, I think was also important, but it wasn't the major driving force at that time, I don't think. All right. And I, I think if you go back, I don't remember what the number it might have been, but there were, there were a, I want to say 5,000, something, you know, a few thousand of the visas under each year's refugee consultation were set aside for asylees in the United States. But you can tell by the number was a small fraction of the total refugee admissions. So to me, that just showed that Congress was thinking that this was, you know, a few thousand people here, a few thousand people here, not a hundred thousand people or, or tens of thousands who would be uh, getting granted asylum in the U.S. That cap was later removed, but for, for many years, there was a limit on how many people granted asylum could uh, get good adjust status to green card every year. And that those numbers were actually, they were part of the overall refugee uh, consultation, and they were, they were supposed to come out of the worldwide uh, uh, refugee allocation. Oh, done by the UN? No, done by the United. There was the executive did a consultation every year in advance, saying how oh, many right. refugee numbers they were going to use, how they were going to be distributed, you know, how many were going to Southeast Asia, how many would go to Eastern Europe, how many would go to Africa, uh, the Western Hemisphere, and then a certain part of that consultation said, and, you know, 5,000 numbers will be allocated for adjusting the status of refugees in the United States. All right. So we just talked about the 5,000 refugee cap on adjusting status. But what other provisions did the Refugee Act have? Okay. Well, a main provision was for the selection of refugees abroad, and those refugees were to be of special what was known as special humanitarian concern to the United States. So that meant that not every one of the uh, tens of millions of refugees who were in third countries or in refugee camps would be selected for the United States. Generally, the refugees who were determined to be of special humanitarian concern were either people who had family connections with the United States, had worked for, helped the United States government, who had uh, perhaps intelligence information we wanted, or maybe uh, somebody with great scientific talent or somebody that we thought would uh, uh, benefit our uh, space program or our, uh, our, our rocket program or something like that. They were generally thought to be people whose, whose admission would Further our you know further our national interests, special humanitarian concern. So I think the idea was that the United States wanted to take sort of the cream of the crop, the refugee crop. Yes, the refugee crop, and and have it be people that that we thought we had an interest in for some reason. There there also was a provision that allowed for processing of refugees by special designation. Normally, a refugee has to be somebody who's outside their country of uh, origin, but there was a provision that allowed in-country, at the president's discretion, allowed in-country processing of refugees. For example, Cuban refugees could be processed in Cuban, Cuba. 
there were some Soviet refugees, uh, Jewish refugees who were processed in uh, Russia. There were various times when, for various reasons, we processed the refugees directly in the country they were fleeing, even though they hadn't uh, fled the country. And that was a little bit of a variation from the normal refugee uh, definition. There was a base number set at 50,000 for the overseas admissions, and then if the president was going to exceed that number, he was supposed to notify the judiciary committees and explain to them why. And another big feature, I think, was the basically incorporated the United Nations definition of refugee into the Immigration Nationality Act as our refugee definition. So we were using a that was largely identical with that being used by all of the other uh, signatory countries. So for a moment, it looked like we'd sort of straighten things out. We, we had overseas admissions and this sort of regularized consultation process where the United States could take the people we were really interested in. We had codified the asylum system. Uh, provisions to screen everybody after a period here and, and uh, either give them green cards or determine they should no longer be qualified. And we'd sort of, re I think the executive and uh, Congress had sort of come to an agreement here where the executive would cut Congress in on some of the planning and then uh, Congress, uh, if they agreed, would basically make sure that all the programs were funded. Uh, and, and instead of having a series of sort of unplanned but inevitable emergencies, there was a regular consultation every year. And so it sort of became a regular part of the relations between Congress and the executive. So that's what was supposed to happen in theory. So how did you feel when the Refugee Act was enacted? Well, I think we're pretty happy. I mean, I, I think it had widespread support in Congress. I think, uh, I think for a magic moment there, everybody thought. I mean, no legislation's perfect, but we thought we we'd thought of most of the problems. We had a framework in which, even if difficulties arose, we could work things out with Congress, and and we were we'd be on the same wave as the UNHCR and other international authorities. So I, I think we felt. Uh, that, that we were sort of in harmony, the Executive Congress, the international, UNHCR, uh, international, the refugee, I think the refugee resettlement community preferred this to having, having to go up and lobby for money on an ad hoc basis. So it, it, overall, I think every, at the moment it was signed, everybody was pretty satisfied. So in your personal opinion, was it Jimmy Carter's speech that started the Marielle Boatlift crisis? Um, who knows exactly what it was, but I think it had something to do with one-upsmanship between Castro and the Carter administration. Uh, the Carter administration had you know, said a lot of nasty things about human rights in Cuba, and I think it was sort of a way of saying, all right, you know, you're, you're uh, talking this big human rights game let's see what you do when I give you a, a mass flow of refugees and you become a country of first asylum. Let's see how all your human rights policies work then. Plus, I think Castro was an opportunist and he probably did see it honestly as a way of getting rid of some 
undesirables and dissidents that he could unload on the United States and it would be very hard for us to ever force him <laughs> to take them back because of our uh, relationship with Cuba. So I, I, I think part of it was maybe philosophical about wanting to show up the Carter administration's human rights policy. The other was maybe just plain opportunists. Here's a chance to unload people that I don't really want, that I don't need in my country and uh, let them go to the United States. Who cares? Good riddance. Right. And we can talk more about this next episode where we'll deep dive into the Mariel boat lift and the long-term consequences, specifically consequences that fed into the Reagan administration's treatment of Haitian refugees. And we can talk more then about the greater patterns between the way refugees were seen after Marielle Boatlift and the Trump administration's treatment of refugees. 